When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level, and you can try any level for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers like you, insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remix, where we randomly pair a post from across our shows to talk about whatever they would like to talk about. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the epic book club, and much more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukara, and fellow writer Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Thursday, June 17th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Uh, life keeps trucking on, Kim. How are you? <laughs> Indeed, it does. I was just uh, talking with one of my coworkers this week, and we were like, you know, we could all just like use like a month, you know, of just like off to just like yeah. reset and like chill out and like get ourselves back in the back in the game, but. Uh, we can't do that, so we just have to. <laughs> that was a depressing end to that. <laughs> I know, I know. You're like, but that is but a fantasy, so onward we trudge. Yes, onward we trudge. <laughs> Capitalism, fish shaking. <laughs> I was going to make my wife uh, make a t-shirt with that on it. <laughs> onward we trudge. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> So uh, are you reading anything interesting right now or how's your reading going? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, I'm reading a lot of things and then, you know, as always, finishing none of them, um, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. I realized that I have been reading so many ebooks and Mm -hmm. then I I counted my books last night, you know, like for fun. For sure. We have like just over at least the ones we've unpacked most of them from when we moved in February and we have like over like 850, which feels excessive, you know? I would like us to be closer to like five or 600. Like, I think that that's still like, wow, oh, that's a lot of, 850 Mm -hmm. feels like, oh, that's a problem Hmm. that you got. So, but then I was like, you're not even (laughs) reading them. You're just, (laughs) you're just reading ebooks. So Uh, I need to like be more mindful about the format of my book. Mm -hmm. What about, what about you? How's your read? I have not counted my books in quite some time, and I'm a little bit afraid to do it. I like. I feel like I don't actually want to know the answer to that number. <laughs> you know, my reading has been like it has been most of the year. It goes in like fits and spurts. So like I have a hard time reading in just like little bits, but I can sit down on like a Saturday or like a long afternoon and just read a whole book or like half of one. And so I can't seem to get myself in a place where I can read for like a half hour. It's either... I watch a lot of television or I read a whole book. 
And that's a weird, uh, it's a weird dynamic, you know, but. I told you what I, what I did for like the readathon 24 and 48 in previous years, right? Where I would like get a hotel room and just like read there. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, honestly, I was like, oh, well, now that, you know, things are getting back more like more back to normal, I guess, or like evening out, maybe I'll like do that because I didn't Mm. do it last year, obviously. And because everyone wants to travel right now and I live in an, an, urban metropolis indeed hotel rooms are so expensive (laughs) and it's summer right like there's a bunch of factors there but i was just looking at all these hotels and i was like oh no (laughs) so now i'm like okay i guess i'll wait until like january when no one wants to come to (laughs) chicago very true very true so speaking of reading i wanted to just follow up on um two of the books i talked about at the last podcast In New Nonfiction, I talked about Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford. Uh, I finished that one, and I stand by the recommendation. I thought it was really great. I will say I missed giving a content warning for sexual assault, and I think that's kind of a big one um, that happens uh, within the first half of the book. So I wanted to make sure to mention that if you haven't picked it up already, if it matters. But I think it's a really stellar memoir, just really beautifully written. So I'm glad that it's still continuing to get good buzz. And then on the fiction side, I mentioned I was going to read or was reading Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Uh, it was perfect. I loved it. I don't know if like technically it's a perfect book, but it was exactly what I wanted to be reading at the time. Like it's very Southern California, frothy, random celebrity name dropping. I think they're mostly fake celebrity names, but it's very funny and just like interestingly structured and really good. So I really like that one too. What's the basic premise of Malibu Rising? Oh, so it is about four people who live in Malibu in the 1980s. They're all the children of a famous singer named Mick Rivera. But Mick walked out on their mother when they were children, and their mother died when they were teenagers. So the four of them uh, grew up kind of taking care of each other. And the book is set on the day of the Rivera party, which is – or the Riva party, which is like a – annual event that like tons of celebrities and all these sorts of people come to because um, one of the kids is a famous model. Um, and so it's what happens at the party, which is uh, it goes completely off the rails. Oh. And it's also about their family. So yeah, that's the that's the premise. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, that's good. Uh, all right. So with that, we'll jump into our first sponsor. This week, we're sponsored by Source Books and particularly The Woman They Could Not Silence, One Woman, Her Incredible Fight for Freedom, and The Men Who Tried to Make Her Disappear by Kate Moore. So the subject of this book is Elizabeth Packard. Uh, Her husband of 21 years feels increasingly threatened by her intellect, her independence, and her unwillingness to stifle her thoughts. So uh, one summer morning, her husband has her committed to an insane asylum. The conditions inside the hospital are horrific. But most disturbing is that Elizabeth is not the only sane woman confined to the institution. There are many rational women who tell the same story. They've been committed to keep them in line. And this is uh, that story. So uh, Kate Moore is a New York Times, uh, USA Today, Wall Street Journal bestselling author. Um, her book that you probably know her for is The Radium Girls, which is the true story of the women heroes who were exposed to radium in factories across the United States in the early 20th century and their groundbreaking battle to strengthen workers' rights. The Women They Could Not Silence is dark and dramatic, but it's ultimately an uplifting tale of a forgotten woman whose inspirational journey sparked lasting change for women's rights and injustices that still resonate today. So that is The Women They Could Not Silence, One Woman, Her Incredible Fight for Freedom, and The Men Who Tried to Make Her Disappear by Kate Moore from Source Books. 
I feel like that's a, that could be especially interesting because I, I think that it gets thrown around a lot on social media, right? Like, you know, if, if this were the 19th century, you could be like put in an asylum mm-hmm. for reading novels, but not actually knowing, you know, the background of, of all mm-hmm. that. So it sounds like like if you actually want to learn more about how that worked and the people who were there in real life, that sounds like a good pick for that. Yeah, and uh, Radium Girls was very well received when it came out. I did not get a chance to read it, but many people that I know did and really liked it. So she's a very dramatic writing style that I think lends itself to stories like this. So Mm -hmm. very cool. Uh, All right, so with that, we're going to share some nonfiction news. It's an exciting news week because the Pulitzer Prizes were announced. So I'll let you talk about that, Alice. So there are three, unless I'm missing one, but I think it's three, um, Pulitzer Prizes where a nonfiction is concerned. Uh, I guess I could say I should say long form nonfiction because, of course, there are many journalism prizes. But uh, History, the winner uh, is Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by uh, Marcia Chatelain. We've talked about that on here a couple times, I think. For biography, it's The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X by the late Les Payne and Tamara Payne. And for general nonfiction, it's Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy by David Zucchino. So congratulations to all those authors. And if you want to check those out, we'll have the full list linked in the show notes. Yes, those all sound uh, excellent. I think The Dead Are Rising has won a couple of awards, or at least one award already. And I want to say you talked about franchise on a previous episode, right? Or no? Yeah, that's, I, I know we talked about it. I thought we talked about it a couple times, but I know I talked about it at least once. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So that's really great. We have two other quick stories. Um, The first one is by Michael Schaub in Kirkus, and it is that uh, Margaret Atwood has a nonfiction book coming in 2022, which I am excited about. I love Margaret Atwood. So uh, Doubleday will be publishing Burning Questions, Essays 2004 to 2021 uh, next year. So this is, the book has over 50 pieces about everything from the financial crash to the rise of Trump, the pandemic, debt, technology, climate crisis, freedom, all sorts of different stuff. Questions addressed in the book, according to the publisher, include how much of yourself can you give away without evaporating? And what do zombies have to do with authoritarianism? So I think that sounds interesting. And I love Margaret Atwood. So Margaret Atwood essays get a thumbs up from me. (laughs) Did you know that my brother illustrated one of her essays? No, please tell me more about that right now. His name is Carl Burton, and he does really cool gifts. And I don't, I think it was her essay on climate change, and I don't remember where it was published, but he did some some cool illustrations for it. That is super awesome. All right, uh, our second story, our last story I want to share is a sadder one. Uh, we'll link to an article in the Washington Post, but uh, Janet Malcolm, an elegant and incisive writer for The New Yorker, uh, passed away just today at 86 years old. She is a journalist and critic who did a lot of writing on truth, objectivity, self-deceit, and betrayal, uh, particularly looking in her essays and her profiles and her books at the relationship between writers and their subjects. Um, She... It's written a ton in The New Yorker. She had a collection of essays that came out in 2019, I believe, and then another one previous to that. She wrote a really famous book in the world of journalism called uh, The Journalist and the Murderer, which came out in 1990 and is about, again, like the relationship between journalists and their subjects, in this case, a murderer. 
that a lot of like journalists have read as a, a classic in nonfiction and creative nonfiction, um, which I have not gotten around to read, but hopefully this will give me the boost I actually need to do it. But yeah, she uh, this Washington Post obituary shares a lot of information. She was a Czech native who spoke no English when she immigrated as a child to the United States and uh, grew up to write for The New Yorker, which is just... I don't know. That's incredible. So uh, we'll link to that. But that's a sad, a sad thing in the world of journalism, I think. I like when you know a lot of things about journalists <laughs> because of your journalism background. Yes, that is one of my niches. So uh, with that, we will jump into a new nonfiction, which is book coming out now or soon that we are excited to talk about. And so the first one I have is one that I am super jazzed about, and I loved it, and it was exactly the right book I needed to read at the time I picked it up. But I think it's also really good anyway. (laughs) You're really hyping this up, Kim. I know. It's really good. Okay. So the book is called Nowhere Girl, a memoir of a fugitive childhood by Cheryl Diamond. Uh, It came out June 15th from Algonquin. And I read it last weekend, and I finished it in, like, two days because it exactly, like, hit the spot that I wanted it to. So Cheryl Diamond grew up basically, like, without a home or a country or anything. Like, her and her family, which was her mom, her dad, a brother and a sister, who her brother and sister were, I think, seven and eight years older than her, they moved around almost constantly in her childhood. They also, like, switched identities all the time. They had all of these elaborate cover stories. As a kid, she grew up, like, always knowing what their escape plan was and knowing the cover story that she was supposed to tell anyone who asked her about it. And they covered up their past every time they moved. And so... She had this very itinerant childhood where her parents were, like, moving them around all the time. And then there's also, like, this undercurrent of, like, threat of violence throughout most of her childhood, too. Like, her siblings really didn't get along and had this very intense relationship. And then her dad was also one of the, like, could kind of turn on a dime from being, like, very jovial and loving to being very scary. But as a kid where this memoir starts, she just thought that this was kind of all part of the adventure of her family. But what she did not know is that she was born into a family of outlaws who were fleeing from the highest international law enforcement agencies. They had secrets that would eventually catch up to all of them. And it is so great as this story unfolds. She finally, like, starts to understand, like, what her family is doing and how they operate as not normal. And that there are problems both with, like, and how they related to each other and also the fact that they were fugitives on the run. And she finally, like, tries to come to understand this. And then there's just, like, so many weird details about the way she grew up. Like, she was a competitive gymnast. She almost made it to the Olympics while also being part of this con family that, like, jumped from country to country and team to team all the time. Her brother was a competitive swimmer who almost made it to the Olympics. Like, just all of this stuff. And so the book is split into kind of a before and an after. So in the before, she doesn't really know why her family is the way they are. And then in the after, you kind of learn what happened, how they got this way, and then how she has to try and like extract herself from this family and how she, because of the way that they were using secret identities and moving from place to place, she's essentially like an adult woman who has no country. She has no passport. She has no citizenship. And she has to try and figure out how she's going to fix that problem basically without their help. And it just, it was so good. I've been reading, I've been watching a lot of the TV show Leverage. And I was really in the mood for something that was sort of like heisty and con men and grifters and that kind of thing. And so like this book has a lot of those things, but it's much darker than Leverage because there's a lot of violence. um, There's content warning for sexual abuse. But 
overall, man, it's just like such a page turner and she is such a good writer and she drops perfect hints of like, this is the last time I would see this person or, you know, I did little did I know that this was going to be something terrible um, that just like kept me in and I read straight through it. So I thought this book was great. I just like raved about it for a really long time. I apologize. But Nowhere Girl, A Memoir of a Fugitive Childhood by Cheryl Diamond. Wow. Also, when you said Cheryl Diamond, I realized like halfway through, because I was like, wow, she had this whole background. I thought that this was the same person as Cheryl Strayed. And Uh, mm -hmm. I was like, wow, so she spent all this time on the run. (laughs) No, different Cheryls. Yeah, that's good to know. So, okay, I know you said there was like a threat of violence, but does it still overall hit your kind of thing of nonviolent true crime? Yes, I would say so. Like there's... Not a lot of super explicit violence on the page. So, like, her father is kind of a violent and scary dude, but it's not super prevalent. It kind of comes up in small doses. Well, it's not like the purpose of the story is, like, no. here's this violent thing that happened. And we're no. going to get real into it. Okay. No. Yeah, so if other people don't like violent true crime, here you go. All right, my first pick for new releases for this week is Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by Amanda Montel. I was excited about this because the cover is really fun <laughs> and uh, it's got like a U of O and some some funky colors. But uh, so uh, Amanda Montel wrote Word Slut and is um, in general just very into linguistics. So the whole idea behind cultish is that the reason that cults are appealing, the reason they work is due to their language choice, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I was telling my wife about this on a walk and she was like, oh, I want to read that. So basically, she starts off talking about so – there's, there's two things that she contrasts, which is, is really interesting. And one was this woman who got really into yoga and then also this, like, a Sikh-derived alternative religion, which was called uh, Healthy, Happy, Holy Organization, uh, also known as 3HO. And it talks about that. And then it goes into the story of a woman who got really into CrossFit. And you're like, wait a minute <laughs> – Like, where is she going with this? And she basically is saying that the word cult has become so, like, diluted and pop culture-y that uh, actual sociologists don't use it anymore. Because they're like, there's not really a definition. But as a cultural concept, right, people have these these very specific ideas of it being something very dangerous and, you know, cutting people out from their family and, like, brainwashing you. And she's like, brainwashing also is not a thing. (laughs) So there's a lot of stuff where it's like, I'm going to explode your ideas of what reality is. (laughs) But she basically says that these ideas that we have around, you know, like brainwashing, etc. are kind of ways that we use to feel like we would not necessarily get swept up in a cult and like a like a dangerous cult, right? And mm-hmm. she says, no, we could because, and we, and a lot of us probably have been in the way she defines cults, like CrossFit or people who really love Lululemon, <laughs> I think is like another one, because it's this, this way that they have of bringing people in and making them feel like a special group. And humans are very keyed to want to be in, uh, in a group because that's just how we are. That's how we, we evolved and that's how we stay safe. So she says that. They do this through language by using, you know, sort of specific vocab. So, like, if you know it, they know you're in the know and you're special and other people don't get it and all this stuff. And um, it was funny. It reminded me of even my my vocal studio, like, in college. I was like, yeah, I felt this way. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. just there's so many ways this shows up. 
And so just, I think, being more aware of, like, this is how someone could kind of get brought into something that could be fine. She makes that point. She's like, lots of these things are fine. There are only a few that, of course, get highlighted by the news that are not. But just being aware of that's how it works and to, you know, be able to then, like, watch for those things and, like, in case any of the leaders of these movements are perhaps unsavory characters. So, again, that is Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism by Amanda Montel. Yeah, I was really interested in this one. I'm glad you talked about it. In the summary of it, it talks about um, Peloton and... (laughs) My boyfriend is very into Peloton, and I have joked many times about it being a cult because of how, like, weird and obsessed people get with it, so. They get so, and then they, like, will talk with each other about the different, like, trainers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're all like, oh, yeah, Cody. Oh, Cody's amazing. Like, it's, (laughs) it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. It is. So I feel like I probably would want to read this book just because I think it would make me feel like I'm right, and feeling like (laughs) I'm right is really one of, like, my very favorite things in the whole world, so. (laughs) Uh, I shouldn't have admitted that. Oh, well, it's fine. I support you. (laughs) Most people who know me know that, so it's fine. (laughs) Um, All right. My next pick is called Yoke, My Yoga of Self-Acceptance by Jasmine Stanley, coming out June 22nd from Workmen. So Jasmine Stanley is a yoga teacher, a yoga influencer of sorts. Her previous book was called Everybody Yoga, which I did not read, but it looks like it was a a how-to book about yoga basics that also challenges kind of larger issues about body acceptance and the meaning of beauty, especially as it relates to yoga. And so this book is not an extension of that exactly, but I think it's kind of a good companion to it. My sense is that this book is more philosophical. It's got some more autobiographical elements about um, herself and her yoga experience than um, everybody yoga does. So I think if you're you like her, this is kind of an, an interesting addition. And so the premise of the book is that in Sanskrit, yoga means to yoke, which means to connect or to yoke mind and body, movement and breath, light and dark, the good and the bad. And so A lot of what she's doing in this book is looking at how you can apply those kinds of lessons and dualities and connections of yoga to everyday life and kind of the business of living. And so the essays range a lot. There's some on there's one on imposter syndrome. There's some on race is kind of a theme throughout the whole thing. The like yoga complex uh, that is more about like poses and leggings and products um, is part of it and kind of exploring that and how we can think about yoga differently cultural appropriation, white guilt, meditation, self-love, all sorts of different things that she approaches kind of telling her own story and what she's learned and how she takes the lessons of yoga and kind of pulls them into these different ideas. And so um, it's a little book, like small, like in your hands, but also just like really beautiful. It's very funny. She has, she's, it feels like she's talking to you. Like I think on audio, this one actually might would be, might be really fun. But then you'd miss out on these very beautiful, like, black and white and orange illustrations between the essays. So it's just, like, a very, like, nicely put together little book. And very funny. And I think an opportunity to, like, think about yoga a little bit more deeply and a little differently. And about how some of those ideas of duality and balance and stuff like that can really be useful lessons in other places. So um, this one, I think, is really Uh, It's really fun and it's got me thinking and the essays are, you know, you can kind of read one and put it down and come back to it later. So I like that about it too. So that is Yoke, My Yoga of Self-Acceptance by Jasmine Stanley. I think I've tried yoga like twice, maybe. (laughs) I go off and on. Did I tell you in high school, I would go, I probably did not tell you this because it's really specific, but I would go to the library, I would get a VHS copy of the 1980s Dixie Carter 
does yoga workout. Dixie Carter of the show Designing Women. And she does this yoga thing that's like basically for like really old or not easy to move around people. And I was like 16 and like technically should have been able to probably do normal (laughs) yoga. But I was like, this is great. And so I would just like (laughs) listen to like probably 60 year old Dixie Carter talk me through a yoga routine. And that's the only time I've enjoyed it. But uh, I I recommend that uh, that workout. You've never told me that before, but that's a great uh, association to association story to share. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> She's really encouraging. <laughs> um, okay, so my other new pick is Republic of Detours, How the New Deal Paid Broke Writers to Rediscover America by Scott Borchert. So I, there's there were a lot of issues with the New Deal, but the projects, like the WPA projects, I'm so like, I'm such a fan of. And, you know, when I see something was a WPA project Mm -hmm. and it's like beautiful or whatever, I'm like, of course, yeah, of course, this is what this was. So this is all under the Federal Writers Project. And what they did was they got thousands of uh, writers who were struggling during the Great Depression and had them chart the USA. And in order to create a series of guidebooks to, um, we then had 48 states. And They also had, like, publications about cities and regions and towns uh, and gathered folklore and narratives of formerly enslaved people and recipes. So it was all these people getting, like, oral histories and also talk, like, documenting the America of the 1930s. This project is amazing. So I just want them to do it again. But anyway, so this project used writers like Ralph Ellison and Studs Terkel and John Cheever and just all these people who, you know, later, like, achieved literary fame but were buoyed by this project. And as a result of this, we have all of these amazing documents, which were used even, um, did you read Elizabeth Kostova's The Historian back in like the early aughts? I didn't, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I remember her specifically referencing having read the WPA like guidebooks from the <laughs> 30s in order to talk about like because there's like a road trip in it and she's like I, this is how I was able to describe like this stuff. So it's just um it's really awesome. So if you want to read more about how that happened, what the outcomes were, again, that is Republic of Detours: How the New Deal Paid Broke Writers to Rediscover America by Scott Borchardt. That is amazing. What a cool project and, like, thing to have done. Yeah. And, like, an incredible time capsule, like, right, of, like, just that period of time extensively documented. That's so cool. Exactly. We should do it, like, every, like, 10 to 20 years, like a different kind of census. Yes. That would be so cool. What a great idea. Let's get on that. All right, so before we move on, I wanted to just quick mention three other books um, that are coming out at the end of June that I was interested in and thought sounded fun. Um, So first one is called Blue, In Search of Nature's Rarest Color by Kai Kuverschmidt, uh, which is a book all about the color blue and why it is such a special one in nature. Uh, the second one is called Thanks for Waiting, The Joy and Weirdness of Being a Late Bloomer by Dori Shafrir. Um, she's the co-host of the Forever 35 podcast, and so um, this is her memoir about kind of always being feeling behind in many ways. Uh, and then the final one is The Afro-Minimalist's Guide to Living with Less by Christine Platt, uh, which is a book about minimalism, but written by a Black writer. And from what I did read of it, it's um, not 
it's approaching minimalism from sort of a philosophical standpoint or like a internal standpoint rather than like a here's some strategies for getting rid of your stuff. Um, so I think it's an interesting approach that I'm hoping to pick up later. So three quick mentions. There are a lot of books coming out in June to talk about. Christine Platt wrote an article, or maybe it was like an, an excerpt from Afro Minimalist Guide, but it was in, I want to say apartment therapy. And I specifically really liked it because she was like, I wanted to live a minimalist lifestyle, but the aesthetic that is known as minimalist yes. felt really cold to me and I didn't like it. So mm-hmm. like just talking about how to, yeah, I loved that. I was going to buy that book. All right, let's get into our next and final sponsor. It is National Geographic Books with the book More Bad Days in History by Michael Farquhar. Best-selling author Michael Farquhar delivers an eye-popping collection of unhappy days (laughs) starring some of history's most famous, infamous, and unfortunate personalities caught up in a rich assortment of wretched episodes. So I feel like this is almost like a schadenfreude type of book (laughs) where you're like, oh, at least this, this wasn't me. You'll find a politically smeared George Washington, a cranky Colonel Sanders, a cuckolded Napoleon, oh, that's sad, a uh, weeping Einstein, an exasperated Charles Dickens, he probably deserved it, a humiliated (laughs) King Henry II, and a faux contrite Ted Kennedy, and quote, that's just in July. (laughs) Um, It it goes from ancient Rome to the halls of Congress and uh, features an endless array of misbehavior, amusing mishaps, and breathtaking misfortune over the ages and across the historical spectrum. Um, I love that. Available wherever books are sold June 8th, 2021. So it's out already. Get it. Again, that is More Bad Days in History by Michael Farquhar. Thank you for sponsoring. That sounds amazing. I've been having a couple of weeks where it's like, boy, is the universe really just this is where we're at? So that feels like it might be very satisfying to read about a bunch of other people having really bad days. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. All right. With that, we are finally at our weekly theme. So uh, this week, we are going to talk about books that talk about road trips or include a road trip of some kind. And this was my uh, pitch for a topic, and I I wanted to do it because I feel like there's been a bunch of books lately that the premise of them is the author goes on a road trip and tries to, like, understand something better by, like, traveling, in most cases, like, around the United States to get a sense of how things are. And I saw a bunch of them kind of all at the same time within, like, the last maybe three years. And I just felt like maybe this is a trend. I wonder if there's more road trip books we could talk about. And so that is that is what we are doing. So my first road trip book is one that I was really jazzed about. Uh, It's called Quakeland on the road to America's next devastating earthquake by Catherine Miles Uh, came out in 2017. And it is about uh, she goes on road trips around the United States to learn more about earthquakes. Uh, and uh, I don't, it's not really a spoiler, but spoiler alert, we don't know a lot about earthquakes and why they happened, and it is real scary. <laughs> okay, I, w- I want to clarify that I laughed because you just sounded really upbeat when saying yeah. on the road to America's next devastating earthquake. Yeah, that's because I'm going to tell you the, f- the first chapter of this book made me laugh so much. Um, okay. So... <laughs> So the first the first chapter is kind of giving you like a basic geology lesson about like how the earth is built and why we have earthquakes in the first place. And she has all these really amazing stories. And the one that stuck out to me that I like took pictures of the pages it was on and sent it to my friend who loves um, science books was about um, there used to be a thing called the American Miscellaneous Society, which is a group of scientists, but like 
a group of scientists in the loosest possible manner. This group had no statutes or bylaws, no official membership, no officers, no formal meetings, and no proceedings. And people could join just by saying they wanted to join. And the whole point of it was to like try and get funding and support for really strange projects. And so they, in the, I believe, 1930s, launched something called Project Mohole, which was a project where they wanted to drill down through the crust to get to the place where the crust meets the mantle. And they thought if they could do that, that would help them understand earthquakes better. But they could not get any funding for this project until the American Miscellaneous Society came together and got some, but then the project was way too expensive and it went over and they never really managed to achieve it. And so then the Soviet Union tried to do the same thing. They called their project the Kola Super Deep Borehole, uh, and they actually did almost get to the mantle and that hole still exists and you can go see it and it goes like hundreds and hundreds of feet into the earth. So that's the kind of stuff you can learn about in this book. It has chapters on terrible earthquakes that happened that are terrifying. She has a whole chapter looking at dams and how they are constructed and how they have impacts on the earth around them. Um, she profiles some scientists who keep track of earth samples that are used when researching earthquakes because um, people have like drilled into like fault lines and gathered core samples. And there's a whole three different refrigerated labs across the United States where those core samples are held. She looks at like the impact that an earthquake might have on like global shipping and transportation and the economy how we basically can't predict earthquakes and how we try to improve earthquake safety. Just like a whole range of stuff. And what I liked about this is she reminded me a lot of Mary Roach. Like she takes this sort of similar meandering approach. There's a lot of really fun humor in the book. She really shows a lot of interest in people and in quirky science. And like you've mentioned a couple times before, like people who care very deeply about very specific things and are trying to find answers to these very specific questions and how comforting it is to know that there's someone thinking about this specific thing. Uh, and that's what a lot of what this book is about and why I really liked it. So Earthquakes are scary, but this book is really fun. Quakeland on the Road to America's Next Devastating Earthquake by Catherine Miles. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like anxiety would preclude me from. Re I, how do? You, well, how would you? Answer Probably that? yes. Yeah, <laughs> if you are, if you are an anxious person, like reading about how there can be earthquakes basically anywhere, and we have no idea when they're happening, and there's not a lot we can do about it, is probably not going to be helpful for you. Okay, I thought you were going to be like, oh no, like here's how you no. can counter. You're like just like no, mm -mm. no, I do not think so. You know, partially, I think, like, part of the reason I'm not, like, super alarmed by it is, like, we just lived through a pandemic. Like, at this point, like, who knows what's going to happen and there's nothing we can do. And you, like, live your day as best you can every day. And, you know, there might yeah. be an earthquake. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember my Geology 101 professor telling us some worrying things about earthquakes in the Midwest. But, um, you know, then you just don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Um, anyway, okay, so my pick is unfamiliar... <laughs> Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah Vell. Uh, I think I've probably referenced this on the podcast before just because I talk about Sarah Vell's books when I can. Uh, mm -hmm. I really, really love her combination of history and road trippery. So I've done like various of her four or five books. I don't know how many she has. But Unfamiliar Fishes is a focus on the annexation of Hawaii along with uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. But it, it's focused on Hawaii. Like, she references the, the other sort of uh, horrific things that the U.S. did at the end of the 19th century. But um, she particularly is like, okay, so 
when the missionaries came to Hawaii in the 19th century, what happened? You know, how did we arrive at Hawaii becoming a state? And uh, the title, Unfamiliar Fishes, comes from Hawaiian historian David Malo, uh, who worked with missionaries, but he later warned of their influence. And he said in the mid-19th century, so he was a Hawaiian historian in like 1850s, uh, he said, if a big wave comes in, Large and unfamiliar fishes will come from the dark ocean, and when they see the small fishes of the shallows, they will eat them up. So I, I think I've I've mentioned when I talked about the book before, the missionaries kind of like they they didn't have a horrible impact on the island, like as in as much as their kids did. Like it still wasn't great, but their the missionaries' children are the ones who like started the Dole pineapple plantation and like just had a um, coup. And, you know, overthrew uh, Queen Liluokalani. And there was just all, all, all this horrible stuff. And the reason that we kind of have Hawaii as it is today, where you have a lot of United States, uh, like mainland tourists coming just to, you know, use it as a vacation spot. That's because of this. So, you know, if you're, again, I believe I've shared before, but I somewhat put a little bit of a damper on my cousin's bridal shower because I was talking about, she was like, I'm going to Hawaii on my honeymoon. And I just read this and I was like, oh, here are some facts, uh, including the fact that we <laughs> illegally annexed it under uh, President McKinley. And it's uh, it's not great. It's like, it's it's real bad. So, but I feel like just having those kind of facts in your back pocket um, is really helpful. And Sarah Val, you know, the road trip part, right, is she always will mm-hmm. not only travel to the place that she is writing about, as I think many historians will at least try to, but also talks about that trip and she talks about her family that comes with her and her um, conversations she has, you know, as she's trying to discover this information. So it's it's kind of taking you on this discovery journey um, as well as giving you uh, her research. So again, that is Unfamiliar Fishes by Sarah Vell. That's a great pick. Yeah, I love the way that Sarah Vell like brings you along through her research. Um, I think that's just a really fun quirk of her books and like the way that she does her does them. So that's a good pick. Yeah. Um, All right, so my second pick is uh, My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem, which is her memoir that came out in, I think, 2015. Uh, And so this book uh, is about how – is about her life as a traveler and how her life being a person who travels on the road in another way has really affected her activism and the way that she approached her work uh, through the women's movement. So – There's a quote in the, I think, the dust jacket that I really like that is from the book that I want to just read. So it says, when people ask me why I still have hope and energy after all these years, I always say, because I travel. Taking to the road, by which I mean letting the road take you, changed who I thought I was. The road is messy and in the way that real life is messy. It leads us out of denial and into reality, out of theory and into practice, out of caution and into action, out of statistics and into stories, in short, out of our heads and into our hearts, Uh, which I just... Oh. Really love that. That's a good. It's a good pull quote for them to to take from the story. So, um, Steinem had a very um, itinerant childhood. Uh, every fall, her dad would pack their family into the car, and they would just sort of drive across the country until they found some place to stay. And they would kind of do odd jobs and make their economic situation work as best they could until they traveled home again at the end of the season. 
And so that kind of travel in her childhood led to a lifetime of travel, which then helped lead her into her activism and her leadership and her commitment to listening to voices and ideas from many different people. And so this book is kind of about that experience. It's also her story of growth and kind of coming to understand feminism and intersectionality and all of those things and the growth of the women's movement and how life as a traveler really helped her see some of those things. So I really like this one. I've been listening to it on an audiobook, and it's really great. She's a very, uh, she's a really generous view of people, which I appreciate. And so she always is helping bring in their stories and trying to show what the women's movement was trying to accomplish and how she was a part of it and the things that she learned. And she's very reflective, and I think she has a lot of humility about herself and her work. There's not like a lot of like, gossipy moments or anything like that. Like it's it's pretty nice um, throughout, but I think it's really interesting just to like use that lens to look at her life, uh, the lens of a, a traveler. So I think it fits in the road trip theme in that way. So My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem. Were you bummed that there weren't gossipy moments? I was a little bit. I always love good gossip, you know, mm-hmm. like that's fun when you get a memoir from someone famous and they'll like tell you funny gossipy things about other people. But I understand kind of why she's not like it's it's not that's not the kind of book it is. But, you know. Right. Yeah. No, that's understandable. But disappointing. One can always wish. (laughs) Um, My other pick for road trip books is Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip by Richard Rattay. Uh, When I saw this title, I was delighted because, um, like Kim was saying at the start, um, a lot of these books that we kind of had noticed were, you know, having this theme of someone being like, oh, I want to find out more about something. And they drive around the uh, United States and interview people. It's it's really been happening a lot. So we have a number of those. I think we've talked about a lot of them on the podcast over the last three years. But um, I thought it'd be interesting to go more into like, what is the sort of broader history of like a family road trip mm-hmm. as we come to see it? So this starts talking about the interstate highways in the 1950s, right, under Eisenhower, and uh, how American families decided, you know, because you, you couldn't fly anywhere cheaply. It was still expensive, and you had to get dressed up, and <laughs> people smoked on the plane. It sounds terrible. <laughs> so people decided, you know, hey, we're going to get in the car, we're going to drive somewhere, which like also, I grew up in a family of um, how many people did we have? Five. And we drove everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that was just we we had a van, there were no safety regulations. (laughs) Just you would just go. So it was uh, I was excited to see this for that reason as well. It's just a little bit, you know, sort of nostalgic. But the chapters are really fun. Uh, the first one is called Swerving Through the 70s. A family <laughs> boldly leaves its driveway. <laughs> so Isn't good. that so good? <laughs> so good. There's, um, uh, hey, where's everybody going? Americans set off to discover America. Pioneers of the pavement. The long road to the interstate. And then, you know, sort at the... Near the end, uh, up, up, and away, all roads lead to the airport. So, you know, that's when, um, obviously, the road trip started dying down. People started being able to afford to fly places. Oh, I also like um, in and out, in with two ends. And that's motels, hotels, and invaders from space. It just, it's like, it's fun. It's a fun book and uh, covers, again, like a lot from the 1950s. Uh, it came out in, I believe, 2019. So it's pretty recent. And uh, if you're interested, again, it is Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip by Richard Rattay. That is a really excellent pick and like very good historical context for the other books we talked about. I love that pick. 
Before we wrap up, I thought it would be useful to mention some of the other books we've talked about on the podcast that did have road trips as part of their structure or themes. Um, So the ones that I was able to remember off the top of my head were Finding Latinx in Search of the Voices Redefining Latino Identity by Paula Ramos, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States by Samantha Allen, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots by Morgan Jerkins, and Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted by Sulika Juad. All of those are ones we've talked about on the podcast that are structured with around road trips in some significant way. So all of those are also recommended by us. Uh, and so with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. I'm in kind of a YA kick, but the nonfiction book that I am hoping to pick up soon is called The Groundbreaking, An American City and Its Search for Justice by Scott Ellsworth. Uh, and this is a book about the Tulsa Race Massacre published uh, around the 100-year anniversary Um, So it's just a pretty in-depth history about that incident and why why it was lost, why the history has been largely lost, how it was covered up, and the people who fought to keep the story alive. So this is a historical event that I do not know much about at all. So I'm looking forward to learning more. I am so glad that they've changed the name to the Tulsa Race Massacre, you know, Mm -hmm. because words are important Mm -hmm. and uh, influence how we see things. Uh, As Amanda Montel would tell you, which, again, her book Cultish. So that is why I'm reading my current read, which is fiction. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, she references it really early on. And I guess I'd seen the cover, but because I hadn't been paying much attention to fiction, I just had never looked into it. It's The Girls by Emma Klein, which Ooh. is a very thinly veiled tale of the Manson family. And uh, the main character is uh, sort of a, a peripheral figure, and it it bounces around timelines, like before she meets them, and then when she's there, and then like way later in life. And I, it's really good so far. I'm really liking it. So yeah, excellent. Yes, <laughs> it, it is. Um, and thanks, uh, Amanda Montel, for referencing it in your book. With that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. So with that, I'm Kim Ugara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.